In series four of our podcast, we'll be exploring the question, why do good people follow bad leaders? Why is poor leadership so endemic? What is it about power dynamics that means that sometimes the poorest leaders rise so high? And finally, why do organizations still employ people who display dark triad traits? Today, I'm very lucky to be sitting with a philosopher, a consultant, an author of numerous books, a practitioner of systemic constellations, and someone who has thought about and worked with the dynamics of power over many years. Robert Rowland Smith is my guest. Robert, I, I sort of thought that we should begin with the conversation about power because we're all experiencing the impact of power in a very visceral way. I mean, I'm talking to you today with the backdrop of Putin's grasping need for power and his invasion in the Ukraine. We've got the climate emergency and the power play that is emerging from that. We also have sort of small shifts in power. We've got the trade unions in the US with Amazon, Starbucks, where they're starting to achieve small victories, where for decades the trade union movement has essentially been squashed out. So we're seeing kind of flexing of power in some ways and in other ways the diminishment of power. Welcome to our podcast. It's wonderful to have you back. I know that you were part of our first series. And secondly, can I kick off by saying, what is power? Well, Samantha, thank you very much. And uh, it's very good to be with you on the podcast. What is power? The way I define it is that power is the ability to make things happen in accordance with one's will. Because after all, it's quite easy to make things happen against one's will. And that's what we call making mistakes or for things to not happen at all as we'd like them to. So power is the ability to make things happen in accordance with one's will. So you've got to have will, you've got to know what you want to do, and you've got to be able to mobilise people, typically, but also sometimes things, towards that end. So that, that's my kind of working definition of power. But it's interesting, you know, in the examples you mentioned, and, and since I started doing work on, on power, I, I wanted to revise it a bit, because I think power is pretty much always power over something. There's a model in psychology, which you maybe know, that says all people are motivated by one of three things, success, relationships, or, or power. Success is, you know, getting good grades at school, for example, or, or getting a, a fantastic job. Relationships is, as it suggests, building good contact with people over time and receiving the kind of benefits that, that come with that, with human contact. Power is the third big motivator. And what it involves is essentially diverting or delaying the self-interest of other people so that they serve your own. So it's very difficult to be powerful without having other people in your power that you can then mobilize in some way. And I go a bit further than that, actually, and say power is therefore the difference between your agency and the agency of others. So as yours increases, theirs decreases, in a sense. Power is a form of asymmetrical agency, if you like. I, I have more agency than you do. And in fact, my power consists in removing agency from you and diverting it towards my end, as though there's a finite amount of power in any two-way relationship. And I, I take your agency and self-interest and recruit it to serve my agency and self-interest. Sorry, that was a slightly longer answer than I, I meant to give, Sam. It sounds like 
I mean, what you're describing is that there's a kind of struggle within any relationship around power. It's always moving. It's always dynamic. It's never static. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, you, you talked about these principles of power. And I think that probably is the very first principle you talked about. I like the word flexing of power. Uh, and I think that's right. The, the point about power and, and what makes it so fascinating, I suppose, is that it is never fixed. It's like a kind of bar of soap. As soon as you grab onto it, it risks slipping out of your hands. And that's what, exactly why we talk about power dynamics, because a dynamic is a situation in which things change. And if that's the case, incidentally, if power is like a bar of soap and it does shift and it is dynamic, then it creates an anxiety in those who have it to secure it, because the moment you have it, there's a risk of it, it being it being lost. And I think that's probably why that's in the background, at least, of what Machiavelli says about power. Of course, Machiavelli is one of our key thinkers on power. And he says the, the most important thing about power when you have it is to keep it. So kind of at all costs. And it's he wouldn't be giving that counsel if it weren't you know, very much in the nature of power to be lost and to and to slip away. So it has this liquid, mobile, labile quality that's always going to slip away from us unless we try to secure it in some way. And Robert, I, I think what you're presenting there is really interesting because if one isn't motivated by power and more motivated by relationship or success in whatever form that is, then surely the, the people who are motivated by power have a sort of edge on the others in the sense that their thought process is about how to take and control and keep the power. Would that be true? Well, I mean, you, you said we're going to be talking about the dark side of power. So let's <laughs> let's go there uh, early on. Because if you think, if you agree that power is about me having more agency than you, me recruiting your self-interest to my ends, then the kind of logic of that is that I want to survive at your expense, or I will prevail and you won't. Because if the expansion of my agency is life, because it enables me to act and to be and to live and to breathe and to survive and to flourish, then and the opposite is the removal of agency from the other person, well, the, the ultimate removal from of agency from other people is actually to deprive them of life. I mean, that is, that, that is ultimate powerlessness. And it, I say that and I know it's a rather kind of dark thing to say, but the word power, you know, like the French word pouvoir is just, just means to be able to, to be able to do anything. So it's, it's like life itself. So if you deprive people of the, the ability to do anything, if you deprive them of their pouvoir, their ability to do, to be, then the logic is, ultimately, power does have that extremely sinister side to it, which is, yeah, the the deprival of life from others. And of course, you know, you, you referred to warfare earlier, and that's, of course, exactly what happens in warfare. People get killed in the services of power on whichever side it is. I mean, you've taken us into a dark place quite quickly, as you've said, but this this podcast series is the exploration of these sort of manifestations of the shadow side. And I'm just wondering, I mean, what do the philosophers say about power? I mean, you're a philosopher. You've thought about this in a way in which power is not defined necessarily as good or evil. It, it just is. We're all, in a sense, hardwired 
for thinking and acting on our agency. What do the philosophers say? Do they have a point of view? Well, yeah, of course. And um, I suppose the most canonic philosopher to go to on this is, is perhaps Plato and his work, The Republic, is about the distribution of power in a state. And he makes pretty much exactly your your point, Sam, which is that in and of itself, power is is kind of neutral. It depends on, on who has it. So the character of the person who has power then becomes critical because it can be used for nefarious ends as well as as well as good ends, actually. So you can, like, for example, if you, as a parent, you have power, quote-unquote, over your children, their self-interest might be to eat as much chocolate as possible, but you have power over them to divert them towards eating greens. And that's a kind of good power. Yes, it is interrupting their self-interest, but their self-interest isn't actually isn't any good for them. Uh, so that's a slightly lighter example. But what uh, Plato basically says is, yeah, since power can be diverted to nefarious ends, it's better to have people in those roles of power who are thoughtful and capable of understanding the higher purpose in life and promoting uh, kind of good living and good order to the people in that community. I mean, he goes so far as to saying, you know, philosophers should be <laughs> should be running countries and nations. I mean, he's a philosopher, so maybe I think he we would. We all agree on that. I think yeah, that would be a good yeah. place to begin. Maybe not not with the philosophers I know, but perhaps. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, but the point is, you know. Power can be diverted to, to, to bad ends. So whoever you give power to has to be sort of aware enough or self-aware enough not to not to simply take that for themselves. Well, I really like this idea um, or this, this sort of phrase of giving power to because, of course, as humans, we end up giving power to people through our acts of being submissive or appeasing, to quote Paul Gilbert, who wrote The Compassionate Mind is that in a sense we hand it over willingly to some people who might have some of the characteristics we associate with power. And I'm just curious, Robert, why are we drawn to people who have power? Well, you asked about philosophers of power. The other particularly famous one, perhaps, and there are several, would be Thomas Hobbes, who's writing in the 17th century in the context of the English Civil War, although he's in, he's in France at the time. And he says... We're drawn to power and drawn to people who have power or can exert power, partly because left to ourselves, there would be just a massive fight among us all. And and he says famously that in a state of nature, human beings left completely to themselves would would embark upon what he calls a war of all against all, because it's in our, you know, the it's in our natures to have a life that otherwise is famously nasty, brutish, and short. So we, we just default to being like animals. So what Hobbes says is, yeah, we need actually to put in place a power structure. He refers it, to it as the Leviathan, the kind of whale, the sort of monster, giant figure, who will then control us to bring order to chaos and to prevent the kind of internecine warfare and, and civil war, literally civil war, that would otherwise, otherwise break out. And it's quite an interesting model because what he's doing in modern terms is, in a sense, reconciling democracy with autocracy. Because he's, he's saying we ought collectively to vote for and put in place somebody who will then have absolute control. 
but it's because left to our own devices we would <laughs> we would kill each other. So we're drawn to these big, powerful people, partly because we are outsourcing to them, as it were, the responsibility for maintaining the peace and order that we can't maintain for ourselves. So it, to be somewhat psychological about it, it's as if we are seeking a, you know, typically a father figure, though occasionally a mother figure, who will save us from ourselves, I suppose. And, if, you know, if you want to talk more psychologically or indeed psychoanalytically, this is obviously what Freud says about, you know, uh, figures in power. They're essentially father figures, and we have them in place to fulfill a kind of childhood fantasy about the resourcefulness, capacity, almost infinity of the father that we perceive when we're very young children. I mean, it's that, that's so fascinating. And I'm particularly drawn to your word big, because you used, you know, we're attracted to big people. Well, of course, scientifically, we are attracted to tall people. Most CEOs are taller than the average. Thomas Chamora has just actually written a book about our bias towards, you know, height and attractiveness in terms of leadership. So, I mean, there's something absolutely sort of hardwired in us to almost take that big into a very literal sense. I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that, Roberts. Yeah, well, obviously it didn't apply to Chairman Mao, who is one of the most uh, powerful, powerful men in history. And what's interesting with him is that Mao, obviously synonymous with Maoism, and Maoism is a form of Marxism. And Marxism, if nothing else, is, of course, a an analysis practice of power and of power structures. And for Marx, power uh, and class were inextricable from, from, from each other. You, you couldn't really have power without a, a kind of class privilege that supported it. And in a sense, in, in the reverse is true. You can't really have class privilege without power, too. So although we can talk about power in psychological terms or political terms, Marx specifically within those political terms does emphasize class power. And for Mao, the purpose of taking power was not actually <laughs> to exert power over others, because the the whole emphasis of communism is, is precisely not to do that, actually, but to empower all. It was rather in empowering all to defer to the power of history and a kind of ineluctable logic that says ultimately communism will come about. So the power there lies in the force of history per se and the communist ethos bowing down before it. So the, although, <laughs> you know, Mao had power over the Chinese people, but the power that Mao had was nothing compared to the power that history had over Mao, if you see what I mean. So it's a, there's a much larger sweep of history, a necessary motion or locomotion of history to which all people will be subject in some way. Yes. So that's where the real bigness is. So he's a very small man with a very uh, big force of history to to adhere to. Yes, which I think is what's happening with Putin yeah, and Russia. I, at the I think that's right. Yeah. The bigness comes from the kind of historical feeling of... Well, it's a sense of destiny. And I think that's the biggest thing, you know, in power. It's like destiny. What What is bigger than destiny? In a sense, nothing. What's larger than fate? You know, we can't conceive of anything, in a sense, larger than destiny. And that is the thing which even very big leaders, from a certain perspective, might perceive themselves as serving. How interesting, the sort of bigger 
bigger cause. Yeah. I mean, Paul G- Gilbert described it, so it sort of describes that there's a handbook for the sort of tyrants or the people who use power badly. One is kind of portraying a threat, a feeling of threat for those followers. And secondly, a kind of idea that, that we can go back in time and recreate a glorious past. And I think, you know, though that's what you're sort of describing, the sort of the arc of history and how it propels that power forward. Exactly. So this is a very interesting question, isn't it, about the this kind of force of history or the power of destiny or historical forces. And actually, as you're indicating, the trajectory, I mean, you said arc, but the trajectory in some cases is actually more like a circle than a forward line because it is about going back and restoring a previous state, whether that existed in reality or just in fantasy. I mean, it's a it's a common narrative in the West now about Putin, and I have no idea if it's correct or incorrect, that he is trying to restore the Soviet Union, you know, under a, uh, a different sort of economic uh, structure perhaps but but that that is the the movement it's a circular movement to return but to to move the wheel around literally a revolving or revolution back to a state of things that was in place before and the power his power again on that narrative would be to serve that revolving that revolution in the wheels of history mm. and perhaps it's not always sort of such a dark journey because equally there's a kind of counter positive use of power where people are returning to a kind of engagement with nature an understanding of sort of traditional methods of ancient wisdom which i suppose is a is a kind of lighter you know a path towards the light rather than a path towards darkness so power can actually be good i mean what are your thoughts robert on on the you know positive execution of power well i mean you know we think of sort of benign kings, don't we? There are obviously the baddies in history, you know, the Richard III or whatever. But we also think of the, you know, benign leaders. And of course, when we think about uh, benign leaders of our of our times, and Sam, I'm very conscious saying this to you as a, somebody with a South African background, it's often, we often think of Nelson Mandela, don't we, in terms of what it is to exert power well. Although the, the case of Mandela, he, you know, far better than I do, is still a pretty complex one. It's not a sort of straightforward, benign, uh, benign one. And there's a famous leadership model, which which you may know, and some of the listeners may know, which says actually the most skilled power is not either good or bad. Those aren't quite the right terms for it. The two things to combine in order to be the best leader are the combined qualities of a fox who is cunning and a lamb who has high integrity. But those two fuse together in the figure of an owl, which has wisdom, but is also a predator. High interesting. Uh, yeah. So the good versus bad way of characterizing power is perhaps a little naive when we think about, in fact, what's involved, you know, among very uh, powerful people, people in very senior roles, because they have had to make very hard decisions, sometimes unpopular decisions. They've perhaps got, you know, scars along the way, had their own troubles and so on. And it's actually precisely the scars that they bear and perhaps the badness that they've done in their past 
that has given them more credibility. So it's better to be good having been bad than it is to be good having only ever been good when it comes to power, because it gives a kind of gravitas uh, to the to the individual. Gosh, that's so interesting. And I, I mean, I'm really glad that we're talking about the individual now and this idea that people who actually have gone through kind of a bad experience or have done themselves not acted with all how they might have wanted to have acted end up being in a way better than they would have if they hadn't experienced that. And I, I've certainly come across that in, in the coaching work that I, that I do when people are able to talk about actually what changed their path from yeah. having done something. Well, it's interesting, and you know, we're we're recording this podcast uh, around Easter time. I'm not a Christian, but I'm you know been thinking a lot about Christian concepts, I suppose. And of course, one of the key Christian concepts is that of the reformed sinner, you know, the person who is now good, having been bad, and the sort of credibility that they have as a result of making the journey that seems to be greater than the credibility of somebody who's maintained pure innocence all their all their life. And of course, it's, I think it's also applicable to the figure of Jesus himself, since we're on the subject of Easter, because although, in a sense, he is the most good <laughs> possible leader, the most obvious example of goodness and the embodiment of goodness, that goodness is very much generated on the back of his own disruption of the forces around him, his uh, revolutionary power, his ability to challenge authority, his ability to cut across practices and mores of the time. So it is a kind of good, innocent, benign kind of power that he holds, but it's predicated on something which is actually pretty tough, pretty challenging, pretty combative in many ways. You know, it's not as if he goes to his death having never upset anybody, you know, quite the reverse. He's sent to his death precisely because He's a thorn in the side, precisely because he's an irritant in, to the system, precisely because he risks, you know, he, he even commits, you know, acts of disruption and violence uh, during his life. So for me, that's that again sort of supports this point that if we think about good and bad power, it's perhaps not as helpful as thinking about power as a bit more nuanced. There's maybe the goodness that has been bad in the past, but has sort of incorporated, overcome it, learned from it, and is therefore something more real uh, for other people to learn from and be led by. I mean, that's that's such a fantastic sort of lead into this idea that, you know, as individuals, we have to recognize the power that we have in any particular moment and how we tune into our own power. Because in every, as you started right at the beginning, I mean, power manifests in relation to mm -hmm. others in one's relation to other people. So how do we tune into the power that we have at any given moment? And I've seen that play out in, in kind of various ways across the organizations that we work with, where, of course, you're kind of desperate for someone to step in and have, you know, take some of the, the, the kind of power of the group. Conversely, you see a situation where someone has too much power and everybody else feels like they need to be given permission to be able to act or do anything. Um, so, so what you're describing is a is a it's kind of really dynamic tension between these two ideas of being able, you know, having too much power or having too little power, but how to take power to step into your power. And I think certainly the the message or the idea of encouraging people to take their power 
is a hugely important one because that's really where human potential will be met, where people are able to express that fully, not in a, in a shadow way, obviously, not in the yeah. dark side, extreme version, but in this way of energizing and agency and kind of enthusiasm for the future. Well, exactly. And I think it's very similar to the notion of success. You know, people will only take on as much success as their conscience will allow. And the same with power. I will only be as powerful as my conscience will allow. And in fact, it's often the same with money. I will only have as much money as my conscience will allow, because the conscience is the thing which limits potential power, success, financial resources as well. So what is it in my conscience that is setting a limit for me? Because at some level, I mean, I'll exaggerate the point, but at some level, we all agree with exactly how much money, success, power that we have. We've, in some sense, all agreed with that. We could have more, we could have less. But something in us has said yes to that or played a part in, yeah, in, in, in securing that in some way. Well, Robert, we're coming to the end of an absolutely fascinating conversation. I mean, I've been intrigued with this idea of power, specifically in organizations, the dynamics of power that play themselves out. And, um, of course, leaders are often representations of the power in an organization and what that looks like. I mean, many of our listeners will be really curious about how to use their power wisely. And you've given some fantastic examples. But is there any sort of last gift to the listeners about thinking about their own power and the responsibility they have actually as people who have, for this moment anyway, some power, tomorrow it might change. I mean, what are your final well, you, thoughts? Well, yeah, I love the fact that you use the word gift there because I think the best power comes from, you know, what in sort of pop psychology, I suppose is called an abundance mindset rather than a scarcity mindset. Uh, although, as I was saying earlier, Power seems like a finite system. The more I have, the less you have, and so on. There is a completely different way of thinking about it, which is to say that power is part of a gift economy rather than a, a fixed, as it were, transactional economy, whereby the more I give away, the more I get. And it's interesting, in Anglo-Saxon societies, the most powerful person was known as the mathum giver, which literally means the gift giver. So you become powerful through acts of giving. Now, of course, there's a shadow side of that as well, because when you give, you create indebtedness on the part of the people to whom you're giving. But it does turn on its head the idea of taking power, that actually power comes not from from getting it, but from getting something or seizing something. It's not a gesture of appropriation. It's more a gesture of uh, giving or expropriation in some way. So perhaps that's a thought to, to finish with power as a gift. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. And Robert, with any tiny hint of power that I have at this moment, I'm going to hand back to you some time. <laughs> Not that I have any power in this instance, but <laughs> by coming here, we're just saying a huge thank you for this wonderful podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Sam. It's been fantastic talking to you. 